And we welcome you to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. On today's program, we pay memorial tribute to Ray Forgiani, who served Kenosha as city planner and director of city development for 33 years. Ray died earlier this fall from complications related to COVID-19. Ray Forgiani was a morning show guest on a number of occasions, and it was always great to talk with him. The earliest conversation that is preserved in our archives is a 1998 interview conducted by WGTD's own Bill Guy, longtime news director here and the original host of the morning show. The occasion of this interview was the upcoming kickoff event for one of the most exciting development projects in the history of the city, Harbor Park. At the time of this interview, plans were still being finalized for Harbor Park, and they had not yet broken ground. I think you will sense the tremendous excitement in the air as this new chapter in the city's history was being written. Incidentally, only part of this interview is preserved, but we are happy to share all that we have from this interview with you in part one of today's morning show. Joining us again today is the uh, Director of City Development for the City of Kenosha, Ray Forgiani. Always a busy young man, and uh, especially so uh, these days as the Harbor Park uh, development begins in Kenosha. And uh, Ray, before we went out in the air, we were, we were talking about uh, how, uh, how occupied this, this keeps you. How much of your time do you spend on Harbor Park? I'd say in any particular week, it's probably 25 to 50% of my time. Is it really? How big a staff do you have in your department? Eleven people. Okay. Eleven people, and it, we've been, it's been commented by other communities, we do an awful lot with eleven people. I mean, we're spread out from all the way from historic preservation to uh, uh, real estate acquisition, redevelopment, and uh, long-term planning and all the planning functions. We cover a lot of ground with very few people. Okay. I've got very good people working for me. Okay, well, good. But it's good to mention them as long as they're uh, doing such a such a fine job. And as we mentioned, Harbor Park is uh, the topic we primarily want to uh, address today. Uh, Harbor Park, of course, it's the area that used to be the the Chrysler American Motors lakefront plant. It was the Simmons plant years and years ago. Was was the Simmons plant, to your knowledge, was that the first thing that was built on that? Oh, well, it wasn't any question. The first, the first manufacturing, the first manufacturing facility mm-hmm. would have been uh, Simmons facility. I mean, Simmons was one of not the earliest settler. There was manufacturing in the community prior to his establishment, but he was able to corner that important piece of property adjacent to the Harbor Channel. And as my memory serves me right, it uh, was originally a box factory. They they produced okay. boxes for shipping. That it, it that evolved into the mattress industry. And uh, in uh, part of that process, he obtained permission from the state to create land out of the out of the lake, similar to what the Dutch do. Mm-hmm. Um, about a, I'd say a third of the site is in fact made land. It's restricted because it is made. It's restricted to navigational or recreational purposes. Um, but he assembled a very large tract of property. And I say I said manufacturing. Some of the land clearly was not manufacturing initially. Uh, some of the old plats do indicate there were houses in, at, at part of the site. Because oh. so. that was where Kenosha began, right? Uh, where the yeah. Pike Creek entered. Well, uh, that's where the Pike Creek right. and the original village of Southport really uh, bordered both sides of the, the Pike Creek, both to the north and south, a little bit further uh, further west. Uh, actually, the Harbor Channel back then was not, you know, we, we see this <clears throat> an unnatural channel today. Uh, mm-hmm. If you really look at the older maps, the area was pretty much wetland 
And to give you an idea of just how much it's changed, if you really think about where the old Southport lighthouse is, right? And if you can imagine a lighthouse being that far back from the lake and that far back from a harbor channel, it'd give you a better idea. That had to be right, right at the forefront mm -hmm. so it could be seen from passing vessels and heard. Okay. How large a tract is it? Well, it's about 69 acres in total. Okay. And what's the split going to be down there as far as public and private? It turns out to be about 50-50. Uh, um, certainly the eastern half will be re restricted to public uses, and all the perimeters will be. Uh, the intent from, from day one when ULI was here, and then further confirmed with LDR's involvement, is to, to keep the the water's edge publicly owned, publicly accessed. So everything that's being developed around that concept. Um, there also will be a set of central parks that will cross the site north to south. And um, a complex of public buildings which we are hoping and are moving towards being really a museum complex. We knew right up front that included in the 21 million is about $3 million worth of grants from the Urban Mass Transit Authority out of the federal government. Uh, that really reduces the debt to $18 million. Uh, it's, well, there's another adjunct, you might say, to that. The mayor has dedicated himself to produce, attempt to produce, I think it's 2 to $3 million worth of other uh, grant funds. And he's gone a long way. We've already received uh, two grants. They believe they total close to a million. I suspect in the next two weeks there'll probably be another announcement, oh. another substantial amount. He's done a really great job of, of lining up both federal and state assistance on this. The balance of the fund will be general obligation bond. Uh, we're, we're establishing the district. It has been established as a tax and criminal financing district. We really gauge this project so that the private investment made that we're anticipating uh, would, the taxes it would generate would offset the debt associated with the, the public improvements. So, hard question you ask, but there is an answer to it. Okay. Um, how are we going to get, get on and get off Harbor Park? How are we going to get there? Uh, the street design, we're continuing, this was important, we're continuing the gridiron pattern that exists in the downtown. Uh, both ULI and LDR both indicated that it would be a mistake to come up with some other design that might be suburban-like. It mm -hmm. just wouldn't look right, it wouldn't function right. It's an urban area, it should be treated as an urban area. The main streets in will be 56th Street. We're continuing that Grand Boulevard that runs from the uh, elevation past the courthouse through the downtown into the site. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, part of that boulevard will be improved within the downtown, all the way back to, uh, oh, I think it's all the way back to 11th, um, in part because the trolley will be running down the center of right. it. Uh, the other rec access is in, a new access in will be 54th Street. 54th Street doesn't exist east of Sheridan <laughs> Road. I was trying Road. to think where it, where it is. No wonder I couldn't find 54th it. 54th Street is the roadway that uh, runs from Sheridan Road to the train the station. Train station. Uh, okay. Part of the acquisitions that were done over the last two years included the old uh, uh, Shalou Furniture Store. Right. That building's been knocked down. It will, That one, in fact, is the right-of-way that will lead into Harbor Park. That will cut right through from Sheridan Road and cut almost to the end of the site. 
uh, to try to get a better understanding where this, where all of this is. The Shalu site's part of it. There's the old Harbor Drive that's behind the municipal building. Right. That's roughly where 54th Street okay. is, where the ex existing 6th Avenue bridge is located, but where the bridge itself is, where there's an underpass. That's roughly 54th Street, and that would continue th through. So that's one of the things I tell people. If you want to get an idea, get on top of the bridge and look for the train station, and that's where that alignment will be. That's going to provide a whole different vistage to the, to the site, because part of that will result in the removal of the, the 6th Avenue bridge. So the bridge is going to go? bridge is going to go. We've... we've I've raised the issue. I was one of the people who have been arguing for 10 years, why is that bridge there? Uh, it was there originally because there was a river. Unfortunately, right. in the, the late 50s, they buried the river. Then it was needed because there was an auto plant on the lakefront site. You need to be able to get trains and semi-trucks in. <clears throat> well, the days have passed. We don't need to get trains down to that site any longer. So the issue was raised, and LDR concurred and said, you know, you really don't need that. In fact, it's a barrier to the water. If you go east of 6th Avenue, you can't see the lake. Right. You can't even see the lighthouses. So I, our expectation is that removal is going to really open up that harbor much more to the public. Uh, the expected elevation is where the Veterans Fountain is. Right. That should be about what the elevation is. Okay. So there'll still be a drop-off to the lake, but one's going to be able to stand on the west side and see, see the harbor and the the lighthouses and the water utility and, and of course, this Harbor Park site. Sixth Avenue will still go through. Sixth Avenue will still go but through. it's going to be down. It'll oh. be an at-grade roadway. Third uh, Avenue will be constructed through the site um, along with Fifth and Sixth. Each of those streets will, will crisscross through. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of discussions on 55th Street and in terms of what it will be. Our plan shows it as being a pedestrian way. Mm -hmm. uh, however, we're entirely open to uh, it being a street. It really is going to depend on developer input. Okay. But it's, there's going to be plenty of access into the site. Now, that's for vehicles. And I want right. to try to emphasize something now, because we all tend to think in this modern age of vehicular access. This site really has to be for pedestrians. This has got to be for people on, a, on their feet. This has got to be a place where this entire community, this entire county has to look forward to going to and getting out of their car and enjoying the outdoors. I mean, we're designing several parks into the area, a very large promenade, a promenade that will uh, allow for separation of bicycles and rollerbladers from pedestrians and runners. Um, plus, there's several activity areas that are associated with, with the entire complex. So we're trying to orient the entire development, whether it's a museum complex, the housing, or the, the public spaces that are all geared towards pedestrians. So. It's not saying we're not allowing cars in the area, mm -hmm. but we're, we're, we're setting up the area to really um, make it a nicer place for, for people to be, be on foot rather than having everything uh, vehicularly oriented. Okay. We do a little bit too much of it sometimes in this country. Okay. I hate to say a discouraging word, but the fact is this is Wisconsin, and we have winter. It's nasty. I don't like it. And it runs from November, certainly through March. Uh, oftentimes it's awfully chilly in April, even into May. Uh, is there going to be year-round activity down there? It's a bit soon to say. <clears throat> we talk about programming. Um, and I'll answer your question, but let me okay, back up a little sure. bit. Part of the, the, the key in the development is to be open on the programming. And what's going to happen on the site? You, you set an atmosphere. You set a stage. 
but you don't determine beforehand exactly what the entertainment's going to be. And the, the problem with trying to determine ahead of time is you start investing money in something that may not work. So in terms of programming, and this is a question I raised regularly, I raised it two weeks ago with LDR, is that in every site we work on, we want some alternative ideas of what programming might be. Not that that's what we'll do, mm -hmm. but at least it's a starting off point, a place to start thinking as to what activities may go on. So to answer your question now, what will we do in the winter? Uh, we expect that one of the two paths on the, the, uh, the promenade will be open in the winter. Um, I was going to walk out in the cold. It's amazing. All over the world, in winter cities, people go out in the winter. Yeah. They don't stay indoors. If you set up a nice, nice enough atmosphere, people will use it, utilize it. This will be a path that will be farther up off of the, uh, the harbor channel, and it should be open. Uh, last week I talked with, or two weeks ago, I talked with uh, Pat Monaco from the uh, Kenosha uh, KYF, Kenosha Youth Foundation. Foundation, thank you. Uh, him and Ron DeGolier thought it may very well be possible to have cross-country skiing on this site. There may be enough relief and enough distance that... Mm. For a short ski ride, not one where you have to travel, uh, where you're going to travel for a half a day, but then you're also going to have to drive there a half a day. This might be an easy access site that one could do some minimal work on. Um, we've also talked about ice skating on the site, and ice skating in several locations. So one might be attached to the commercial area, or it may be attached more to the housing, or it may be in the in celebration place. We've also talked about, at some point in time in the future, trying to develop a conservatory on the site, a greenhouse. Really? Um, talk about what I would consider a good contrast is to put a facility up that, not, not a large facility, a small facility, that would allow for people to go into in the winter to re for relief. I know that's, that's one of the things my family, family does in the winter. You know, when it starts to get to be a bear in about February, <laughs> we make a trip up to Milwaukee and go to the domes. Sure. So at least you get an hour of spring or right. summer, or in some cases the desert, uh, we may be able to achieve that same end, but I don't want to give any the wrong impression. None of these things are definitively scheduled. They're still in talking stages. Those are things that have to happen later on. Right now, we're we're concentrating and getting the improvements made into the site. Okay. But we have talked about winter activities. We think it's important to that site. One other factor is those people familiar with the site, uh, especially people that may have played football or, in my, in my case, played in the, foot, the uh, football band, remember what a tough site this could be in winter uh, mm -hmm. back when it was Lakefront Stadium. This environment will change with buildings. That's one of the key factors which will decrease the effects of cold winter winds and the, uh, the temperature shifts that come off the lake is setting up with a heat envelope that's associated with building construction. So as the housing goes in and the museums and the commercial uh, buildings go in, what will happen is that envelope will form and the site will become a, uh, a gentler site. Now, it's not to say it won't be harsh. Certainly, the northeast section where Fisherman's Point is will always be fairly harsh. We'd right. expect that, and yeah. it probably should be no other way. There'd be no contrast. <laughs> uh, Ray, we've talked about the, the new public museum that's going to be going uh, in the Harbor Park development. How about the transportation museum that's been talked about? What's the status of that? I was worried you weren't going to ask about oh. that. Uh, let me first talk about the public museum. I would expect, uh, well, expect nothing. June 4th, we're going to, going to have a public forum, a Harbor Park update. that will be held at the public museum uh, between 5 and 7 p.m. 
Uh, we will have a public presentation at 6 o'clock. One of the subjects will be the status of the public museum. At that meeting, we're going to expose to the public and for their input, their thoughts, uh, what is conceived to be the design uh, for the new museum. And I'm not going to give you any more hints than that. Okay. You have to come here to see we'll it. We'll get a look at a couple of weeks now. It's exactly. It's only a couple of weeks away. Uh, that's moving forward. I have to tell you, the, the one segment where we have had no problems has been in the design of that museum. It's been moving very smoothly. Right. Um, good team of people working. Good team from the museum board. A good team from the friends of the museum. It's a great, great architectural firm. <clears throat> been working very cooperatively. The Transportation Museum has made progress as well. Okay. I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to be appointed to the, the committee. Uh, they've been meeting about monthly for four months. <clears throat> um, last month they sent out a request for proposal to uh, uh, experts um, in museum building, museum conceptualization, museum design. Uh, looking for assistance in conceptualizing what this museum might mm -hmm. be like, how big it might be, how much it might cost, how it would operate, what staffing requirements, etc. Uh, we received six proposals back from uh, firms as far away as Nebraska and uh, Ohio. Um, Monday evening, that uh, Transportation Museum Committee met. Uh, they've, we've sorted it down to three firms. Let's see if I can remember their names now. Uh, Holabert and Root out of Chicago, mm -hmm. um, which is, means something to me because that's a former Burnham firm. Right. And men who did the major architectural work in this country a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, Enberg Anderson, who is the architectural firm working on the public museum. And, uh, the Durant Group out of, um, Enberg Anderson's out of Milwaukee. And the Durant Group, which is out of, I believe it's Brookfield, or Waukesha, western Milwaukee, okay. uh, they're the architects who did the northwest, uh, the Northside Library. Oh, that's, so, that's a Yes, that's I a know. Nice so we, we already know we have three really good firms. Yeah. We'll be doing interviews in probably a month, and the, where that's moving is to get a firm now to, to assist us and provide us the expertise to, to, more, to better visualize what this, build, what this facility would look like. Have to emphasize, though. The conceptualization of this building is not just a transportation mu museum. It's, a, it's, it's an historical society with a history associated with manufacturing and in particularly transportation. That's what's being visualized, and uh, we think we've got a winner. We're amazed at the number of contacts we receive from uh, automobile uh, owners across, across the country that are interested not just in visiting but interested in having their vehicles here. Uh, oh, yeah, it's it's amazing how many phone calls we get. You know, between the chairman, myself, I get them. The uh, Bob Furman from the Historical Society, uh, Vince Ruffalo. We're regularly getting people writing or calling and saying, "Yeah, I've got a vehicle for you." Hmm. So, uh, as John Hosmatic, who chairs the committee, puts it, it's he calls it a, a the convolution of ideas. There's so many things that have happened that indicate this should, this will occur. Uh, Vince Ruffalo has amassed this collection of vehicles and particularly written history on National American Motors. He's willing to donate all of it to the community if it's housed correctly. The uh, mayor, in working with the governor and Joe Andrea at a, at a cocktail party, got the governor to commit a million dollars towards this building. We've got the rest of the state jealous of this commitment. Mm -hmm. So we've already started. Now the county has allocated the... Uh, I believe it's $35,000 towards the study. 
Uh, we met, the Historical Society Board met with the new county executive last week. He's endorsed it. He wants to help us as much as possible. Uh, a tremendous opportunity. So, so what I think you'll see in the terms of the Transportation Museum, probably not next month, because we still have to pick the firm, but in the coming future, you'll start to see it conceptualize, similar to what happened on the Public Museum. You start to get an idea of what it might look right. like and what it's going to cost. And I think it's an exciting time for this community. You mentioned the trolleys. They're, they're still in the picture? The trolleys are... Are going to happen? Trolleys are still in the picture. Okay. Um, that's part of the, well, the there's one thing we haven't talked about. I talked about the utilities going. It's a mm -hmm. lot of design work going on right now. The design work is focused on streets. It's focused on the open space. And it's uh, as a part of that, it's focused on the trolley system. So there is a set of uh, engineers out of Stanley that are working on that trolley design. You know, determining the, the, the track type and the track layout and how the electronics work and et cetera. So that's coming along. They're also attached to that would be a relocated transportation center where the bus terminal is presently on 56th right. Street. That will be moved behind the municipal building. So it'll uh, connect in with the, the trolley system. And then there will, of course, have to be a trolley barn. Part of that, that situation will be a new building for the, for the trolleys. Uh, we're hoping that on this uh, forum on June 4th, we'll also talk about the, the trolley system and probably talk specifically on what that the trolley building might look like. Uh, the other item, the other two items we'll talk about at that meeting, one will be the open space areas. Um, the promenade is an example along the harbor channel. We expect this summer the existing uh, wall that is down there will be removed and be replaced by a lower wall. Uh, unfortunately, that portion will probably be closed off and on through the next year. Next year, then, we would expect that, that portion to be constructed. Okay. So that one of the first things that will be done in that site will, in fact, be the promenade so the public can walk around the site. Great. Uh, we've just finished the design on that. We've approved that it's now in for construction drawings. So that, to give you an indication, now we're past conceptual on that particular segment. We'll now start to work out the detail, the very specific details. Uh, the other thing we'll talk about at the forum will be just the overall schedule. What, okay. what happens next, what, what the public should expect over the summer and then the next year is what gets constructed first and how many trucks will be on the highway mm -hmm. and um, how, where we're moving soil, and et cetera. Those okay. things will be covered. And that's all at that meeting June 4th mm -hmm. at the, the Kenosha Public Museum downtown, right. 5608 10th Avenue from 5 until 7. That bad knows the address. <laughs> and, 5 uh, until 7 with a presentation okay. at 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock. There's also an event coming up on June 13th, right? Tell us about that. The blast-off is coming. The blast-off. What's the blast-off? The blast-off is really our groundbreaking effort. We've uh, we pushed and pulled, talked with Kenosha Progress and how we should achieve this. Some people actually thought we should have done it a year ago. We felt it was important to get the site a little bit in shape. Mm -hmm. So the uh, 13th of June... Uh, between 11 and 3 will effectively be the groundbreaking. Uh, we're calling it the blast-off because we're going to blast off at that meeting. There'll be uh, entertainment there. I know Critics' Choice will be there. Uh, so there'll be music provided. There's some other entertainment as well, which I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, there'll be food. There's going to be free brats and free hot dogs and free drinks. Um, there's supposed to be daytime fireworks. Yeah, I, that okay. sounds pretty spectacular. Um, there's supposed to be public officials there. The governor is supposed to be present. Um, and some other government officials. And um, 
I, I heard this one yesterday that was kind of funny. The mayor has insisted that the public presentation be restricted to 20 minutes. <laughs> so we, we figured it out, and there's supposed to be seven officials. They had two minutes each. I, I'm sure anyone listening to this is going to be really disappointed. They're only going to hear public officials for 20 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> so it should be a good time, and uh, it's for certainly a good cause. There will also be uh, a trolley rides available to show people how the site will be laid out. Okay. Uh, we all have trouble trying to figure out the site's large. Where are things? Where are the streets? Where are the buildings? And my understanding is it's also going to be possible to have a better feel to actually physically look at the site to see where things will be located. Okay. So I, it should be a good time. Yeah, And that's on the Saturday the 13th? Correct. From 11 to 3. <coughs> and, you know, where should people go? Uh, where is there an entrance that uh... uh it's going to be there's more announcements coming up but okay. they're actually going to hold it on the uh, 6th avenue it's my understanding okay. where the bridge is okay so there obviously the places the park will be further a little further west from there there should be plenty of parking between the municipal building and uh one jumps Sheridan road between the county parking lots i mean there's quite a stretch of parking between 6th avenue and the railroad station are you getting calls from developers, from private money wants to come in and oh, yes. do something? And it, it's interesting. They're really falling into two groups. We're getting some interest from national firms, and we're getting considerable interest from local firms. No kidding. Um, word of caution, was all like a, we would all like a national firm in. But the more research we, we look at, and we could prove them to be wrong in this, it would indicate the firms that are going to do the best jobs are the ones that have the resources within the region. So even though we've talked with firms from Florida and California, unless they've got offices in Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, where they can be looking at the site in a right. daily, they probably really aren't going to be strong contenders. At the same time, there's a lot of local interest. There's a lot of local developers who, who put up uh, you know, housing and commercial buildings that are interested in doing a block or just one building. Huh. So it's, a, it's a, an issue we're still wrestling with. You know, will this be a single developer or will this be a group of developers? So now, there's considerable interest, yes. Yeah, when it comes to the, the, the private developers coming in, they, they will probably all have their own ideas. Of course, they'll have a, ver a variety of businesses, and they'll all have their own ideas perhaps as far as what they need in their, uh, for a facility. Are, are the facades going to be all of a sort? I would guess that's going to be pretty tightly controlled, what the buildings are going to look like. Definitely. We're in the process of developing um, architectural guidelines. We've been meeting for about three months now with Enberg Anderson. We have uh, an informal design group that uh, is drafting guidelines that mm -hmm. will restrict the materials, will restrict setbacks, heights, will dictate things or encourage things like uh, porches and uh, uh, bay windows, some of the characteristic things of uh, buildings in Kenosha. Um, and yes, there will be strict guidelines. We want to give to the entrepreneur some flexibility, but not so much flexibility that what we wind up with is a mess. Mm -hmm. We want, When we get done, we want it to look like a neighborhood and feel like a neighborhood. So part of that's so developers don't do something silly. Yeah. And also if we have multiple developers, so there's some cons consistency between what's constructed. So uh, in fact, we'll also be developing guidelines for the, uh, the museum complex as well. Mm. So. As each building comes up, they're not that they have to look identical, but there may be some commonality between them, so they fit right. together. No, that's not the sort of thing that that would necessarily scare a developer away. That's not uncommon. In other places, they probably have done. Well, business. actually, it probably will scare some developers away. Well, Those are the ones you don't want. Yeah, the ones that don't want to build something nice. You really don't want them here. 
Yeah. And that's one thing we've learned over the last 10 years in directing development in the community. There really are some lousy developers out there. You know, and we sometimes in my office in particular, we get criticized because we're pretty tough on developers. We're, we want to assure this community that things that come in are a good, we could a good, be of a good quality and will increase the tax base and be some things that we're proud of. Uh, we've run into things that you would be amazed by. You simply would be amazed by. Uh, houses without windows, uh, oh you know, 9,000 square foot houses on lots that are a quarter acre. There's, there's things that don't make any sense at all the developers would do if we, we, we didn't slow them down. What you will find with architectural guidelines, it in effect will attract quality developers because they know their investment's protected. They know when they get done building and the next one, building it goes in, it's not going to devalue theirs. Right. So, no, that's, it's, it's just really a good thing. Uh, okay. ULI has indicated we should do it. Uh, LDR has indicated we, we can do it. And I've been to a, a lot of projects in other parts of the country. It's the way it's done. Okay. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. Ray, thanks so much for coming down. And it's always a pleasure having a chance to talk. I know you have another appointment that you have to make. Uh, don't forget, everybody, the fourth, the, the forum, I should say, on June 4th at the Kenosha Public Museum from 5 until 7 with the presentation at 6 o'clock about the uh, new museum in Harbor Park. And then on Saturday, June 13th from 11 to 3, it's the blast-off down at Kenosha's Harbor Park. Our thanks to Ray Forgiani, Director of Development for the City of Kenosha, for joining us on the morning show today. Gregory Berg has some guests for you tomorrow, so I'll let him tell you about those. Uh, Greg is coming up next with uh, some music here on WGTD, FM 91.1. That was longtime WGTD News Director Bill Guy in a 1998 interview with Ray Forgiani, who served Kenosha for more than 30 years as City Planner and Director of City Development. Today's morning show is a memorial tribute to Ray Forgiani, who died earlier this fall due to complications from COVID-19. To finish out the program today, we share with you an excerpt from a 2015 conversation with Ray Forgiani and Melanie Hovey. Ray talks about one of the great loves of his life, Harbor Market. For anybody who has visited and enjoyed Kenosha's Harbor Market, you have a lot of people to thank, but chief among them, Ray Forgiani. It was his vision and passion that has been at the heart of Harbor Market right from the start. At the time of this conversation, Ray Forgiani was president of Kenosha Common Markets. Melanie Hovey served as secretary of the organization. Ray, you've been so busy with this for such a long time, and uh, I don't think it hurts to uh, start with a little bit of history. So um, if you would, uh, just trace a little bit of, of how Harbor Market... Uh, came into being and what it was that prompted you to work so hard to to see it come into being? Um, I think the reason it started was a couple of reasons. One, I've been interested in, well, we'll put it this way. When we'd go on vacation, my kids would know this, my wife certainly knows this, that we'd always go and look at streetscapes, parks, and markets, both indoor public markets as well as the outdoor open-air markets, wherever we went. That was always one of the things we always looked for in the community because we found them fun. Hmm. That started with me seeing a public market in Toronto, The uh, uh, I forget the name of it, but it'll come to me in due time. <clears throat> and I just love the place. And from my standpoint, anytime I traveled in my previous job as a city planner, I always, when I saw something I liked, then I wanted that in my community. I wanted it by my house. So I didn't have to travel halfway around the world to see something and enjoy it. At the same time, we were um, the city was working on the redevelopment of the uh, lakefront site, the former 
Simmons, Nash, AMC, uh, Renault, Chrysler site, and that as we designed it, it was clear since uh, about a third of the site had to be used for public purposes or navigational that a market would fit into it. So almost from the beginning of its design, it was contemplated there would be a market. Partway through the process after construction was all underway, um, worked with then uh, Mayor Antaramian if we could set up an ad hoc committee to study the feasibility. So off the record, you might say, off the, uh, uh, the table, I assembled people that I thought would be necessary uh, to, to develop that develop the concept. Melanie was one of them. In fact, uh, we still have many, many of those original people. But we met a handful of times, concluded we had a really tight time frame, but we thought we'd try it anyway. Um, we went back to the mayor with a report. He then developed an ordinance. Actually, I wrote it. Um, it's created the committee to start the market with a sunset provision. The idea was to start it under the city's umbrella, and then since it really is a private activity, to get it out from underneath the city. Uh, I share this concept with uh, John that there's things government does better than the private sector, but there's things the private sector does better than the public sector. And hmm. having a government that would initiate, enhance, and support an activity then allow, allows it to happen. So that's where it started. Within two years, we the sunset uh, was going to close. We created a not-for-profit corporation, and uh, we were already operating as a committee as, at the market, and then we spun it off as a not-for-profit corporation. Um, and then it simply has grown from there. We started with 18 vendors the first week, and by the end of that summer, we were to 39, and now we're approached something like 150 to 170 this summer. Our crowds have been... So far this year, there are around eight, 9,000 people per weekend. Hmm. Fabulous. Uh, from hey, that- let me add one other thing about it. And that's it. We're, right now, we're doing about $50,000 worth of business every Saturday. That's just within the market itself. That's a lot of money to bring into a community in one day. And a study that we had about, done about 10 years ago indicated the spinoff effect in the surrounding area, the downtown in particular, uh, was probably three times that. Hmm. So you, you 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 look at the impact of it, and you say, well, it's a lot of things that's not directly attached to the downtown. But when people and they're coming from out of town as well as locally, when they come, they they will spend money on breakfast, they'll spend money on lunch, and as we've pointed out, once we've got him here first thing in the morning, then we can keep him here through most of the day because there's other things to do. Right. So if you pop into a museum or buy something at Bjorn's or whatever it might be. Uh, the, the the city of Kenosha is better for it. And the the effect is even more profound than that. There are uh, stores, retailers that are further west that they know when the market starts and they want to close because their volume just picks up. Hmm. So they come to the market, then they make other stops because there's other things, other great things in Kenosha to, to acquire, Absolutely. to enjoy. Um, back to kind of the creation of the market. First of all, uh, remind us of when exactly that was, that opening day with 18 vendors. What year was that? 2003. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, ahead of that, what kind of a timeline are we talking about? I mean, how for how many months or how many years did the committee meet? I mean, laying the groundwork before that market first opened. I think it was less than six months. I think oh. it was like three, three or four months. So you weren't kidding when you oh, said no, it was compressed. Oh, wow! But we had a good, good representation. UW Extension was represented. The County Health Department, um, Parks Department. Uh, we had uh, um, artists like Melanie. 
Uh, we had a vendor like uh, Curzio Caravate. So we do really tried to get, a, and we had the Convention Visitors Bureau represented. The idea was to get those people that would likely have special talents that would be needed to make it, it work. So we had PR covered, we had the arts covered, we had uh, food covered, we had the health department, and then the county extension. So it actually was a very, very, uh, I think, strong group, and it really laid a good foundation for the organization we have today. Hmm. How much uh, discussion occurred uh, at the time about exactly where it should be located? And were there competing ideas about the best place for it to be? Or right from the start, was it just absolutely clear that this was the one and only place where it could be located? I don't mean throughout the city. I mean, I think everybody understands why it's generally where it is. But I mean exactly on that particular street. Or was that just a a no-brainer decision actually easily arrived at? Well, it actually started on uh, Plaza Douai, and that was the intent to do the plaza there. And even back then, we had talked about a public market also being located on that site. Um, when the harbor front development occurred, however, they needed the plaza for its marshalling of the construction equipment. So the plaza was closed off to us. And um, I viewed that location extremely important for a number of market reasons. One, it's a beautiful site. Two, there's a tr- some traffic volume that you can pick up from the museums. Uh, the, also, the condos are right there, and the uh, the marinas right there. Those are all not necessarily profit centers, but those those are all a group groups of people with disposable income. <clears throat> so my take immediately is let's move to the street. Let's go down Second Avenue since that is covered under like the Lake Band requirement. Everything on from the west side of Second Avenue east is covered under the. Uh, Northwest Territorial Ordinance, we're going back in history. So what it requires, it's either public or navigational. It can't really be used for private purposes where the public can attend without difficulty. As an example, a a white cloth restaurant couldn't locate there, but a hot dog stand could. So Ah. that was the first choice. There was certainly a push to move us out of the site entirely. Um, Some people wanted us over by City Hall. But we knew from our previous experience, the closer you are to the lake, without buildings blocking, the windier it is, the more problems you have. So there was a strong push to push that way, and uh, there was a strong push to push us in the downtown. We did try that for one weekend. It was not, not, a, good, not a good fit. Hmm. Um, so we stayed pretty strongly to stay in 2nd Avenue. Now the, as time goes on, we've expanded it, so it's 2nd Avenue. The plaza opened up again. We expanded back into the plaza. Now we're expanding down 56th Street, moving it west to make a better connection with the downtown. I visited a market in uh, Arles, France. That must have been a mile long. And I realized Mm. if if the French can do it, then we can do it. (laughs) Not that we have any advantage over them, but they've certainly got probably an extra uh, millennium of experience in markets that we don't have. And right. it worked there. It was a delightful market. And I said, well, we can aim for the same thing. So, so far we haven't found a cap on how big we can be. We continue to attract uh, new vendors and uh, new customers. Hmm. So the the market has, as you've just said, is, has grown dramatically uh, in terms of number of vendors and uh, the number of customers and so on. It's just uh, continuing to, to move from strength to strength. Uh, what are the 
uh, criteria of of the vendors who are invited to and or allowed to uh, sell their wares at, at Harbor Market. It, we, we, we get the sense that it isn't just come on down whoever you are and sell whatever you want. I mean, That's you, exactly yeah, right. you, you have some, some, some careful restrictions, although I don't know that to the casual visitor it would be immediately apparent just what those restrictions are. And they're not supposed to be apparent to the, the right. public. Exactly. We've taken a stance very much like Disney. You never want to see the characters out of costume. <laughs> so um, what goes on behind the scenes, you're not supposed to see. You're just supposed to come to the market and enjoy yourself. Right. It should feel very spontaneous, right. and, and, I, and I think it does. And yet it isn't as spontaneous as it might seem. There, there are some careful guidelines. So give us some sense of what those guidelines are in terms of who can who can sell what at at Tarber Market? It and has to be it's it's local, so it has to be artist made, or the it's local. You'll see the farmer that is in in the booth with their food. So that's probably one of the main main things is that very very few people can bring things from that they did not produce. And the things that they did not produce, we do allow, but they have to be very unique. Uh, imports, as an example, we may allow imports that might be hard to find in the region. So we've had everything from African art to uh, Indonesian jewelry. Uh, would be two examples. For a while, we had uh, Provence t- uh, um, tablecloths. But as we an care very much about fair trade, and we care very much about organic. So we give preference always to top quality mm-hmm. um, products. So an app- you know, a, a potential vendor has to submit an application. They have to give us background, tell us what they propose to sell. They have to supply pictures, or if it's food, um, prepared food particularly, or processed food, uh, they have to work through the health department. And we've kept a sanitarian on the on the board from the beginning so that there, mm-hmm. there's a good, seamless connection between the two. Mm-hmm. So if uh, a food vendor, a prepared food vendor, let's say, called myself or, or Melanie, um, that's the first thing we tell them is to call a health department, talk to a sanitarian, make sure that what you're proposing to do is legal that it meets health standards and get your proper permits. Once you've got that in line, then submit your application. Hmm. Uh, When it comes to escalating quality, do you find that someone that was a vendor at one one point, you're tempted to discard them in favor of somebody who's even bigger and even better? Or or have you really gone for quality right from the start? I don't think it's so much picking one over another, but there are vendors who we've not approved in subsequent. You have to reapply every year. Mm. It's Every year it's a new application, uh, and it's because we do watch our vendors. It's not enough just to get in. We do expect vendors to be uh, easy to work with. We expect them to follow the rules. We expect them to be uh, provide that tone of happiness. Mm. So there are vendors over the years that we simply have not allowed to return because they, they didn't add to that, uh, that ambiance. Or they took away from it. Right. And they weed themselves out, too, because better quality products, yeah. the customers are going to go and purchase those, and then their sales drop, the ones that are not are more inferior. And so they weed themselves out as well. Right. I mean, they don't want to waste their time, and, exactly. and they plunk down some money to be part of this, exactly. right? Yeah. Uh, talk about the actual shaping the construction of the market in terms of who is where. Um, is that a complicated matter? <laughs> That's <laughs> Yes, it is complicated. It's complicated Very. since we're not a market where you have to sign up for every day the whole year. We allow people to come as in 
uh, as few times as one. So the number or the who's in the the, the market can change fairly dramatically from week to week. Hmm. That, that happens. We really like when vendors come every week. Someone may see something on week, come the next week, and where are they? They're not here. So as a result, the, the, the layout is relative is complicated. It's That's so one fluid. Of the reason, it's, it's one of the reasons we've got a – you submit an application, there's a two-week delay because we have to have enough time to for Curzio to do the layout and then for us to have the, the maps that go with it. Hmm. So do people end up, in a sense, at least largely staying where they have been? And are there certain locations that are regarded as sort of prime location that other vendors aspire to? Food tends to stay in the same place because electricity is only in one place. Hmm. It's on the east side of 2nd Avenue, so you'll see most of those vendors there. And the people that are there for the whole season are most generally in exactly the same spot. That's a benefit of being willing to sign up for the whole year, then you get the same spot. Very good. So what kinds of charting have you done over the years in terms of how many people are coming, what they're buying, who's doing well? Uh, I mean, it it seems to me that's probably not the easiest thing to keep track of. Well, we're we're really not concerned how each individual vendor does. We really think that's a private matter between um, them and their customer. Um, but the the metrics from the very first year we counted um, visitors. We do a, a, a random count every half hour, and then uh, it's you know you'd like to get a more accurate count, but you, when you you're dealing with thousands of people, you can't count everyone that comes in all day long. It's so every half hour we go out and do a count, and then we total it at the end of the day. That estimate is fairly accepted across the country now. Um, right now we're also involved in a, uh, a market impact analysis, uh, see how strong the market is as we start to prepare to do some bigger things so we can put a value to the market. So we're collecting data each week anonymously from each vendor to see what the, their estimated sales are for each day. That's where I, I said that number's been around 50000 per week so far. Hmm. And that's, I think you said... It's not easy to do, believe me. Right. You know, there's a certain amount of suspicion, that, which is understandable. People, as, vendors assume that you're collecting the data so you can raise the rates. That's not, uh, and, or, or they view it, it's going to be turned over to the IRS or the State right. Department. Well, and you, you yourself just said you, to a large extent, regard it as a private matter, right. how each one of these vendors is doing. Yeah, and I, yet, for the overall good of the market and and for some of your future plans you need to have at least some data of that kind yeah we'd like to be able to put a a price tag in what the value of the market is so we're involved in this impact analysis which is actually coming out of the fda uh, main street program thanks to chris nauman he got us involved in this also the university of wisconsin madison and uw extension so it's a pretty rigorous uh, effort we're going to be doing some counts in the next next few weeks where we actually will count for 20 minutes of each hour at every entry point. Hmm. Um, and um, thank goodness we've got a volunteer organization, um, some students actually from Gateway that one of our vendors is a, a coordinates. So hmm. he's offered that, and we're that'll make that possible. We scratched our head for a while how we were going to accomplish it. Yeah. Do you know, and secondly, do you care, um, where your customers come from? In other words, does it? Do you think it ultimately matters how many of those customers at Harbor Market are Kenoshans 
or Ricinians or from Milwaukee or from Illinois. Um, Does that really matter? Have you done anything to try to even determine that? Uh, we did a zip code study a couple of years ago, and we will probably have some. We're going to do something similar with this impact analysis. Um, and how are does we that trying work? to reach to other people? Well, certainly, but I think it's no much different than any other retailer. As long as people are spending money, you're not too concerned where they're coming from. But it is interesting to know what our reach is, how far we reach in terms of. And I've been amazed from after probably our maybe our, our eighth year just how far the reach is. We've got people that will um, come in from the very southern end of Lake County and all the way into Milwaukee County, and despite the fact that there's competing open-air markets on the same day at the same time, they would mm-hmm. rather travel an hour, 50 minutes, to come to this market. That was Ray Forgiani, along with Melanie Hovey, an excerpt from a 2015 conversation about Harbor Market. The interview in its entirety will be shared in the podcast version of today's morning show. I'm Greg Reberg.